this episode, we're getting our hands dirty and delving into the film The Dig. Here's actor Monica Dolan on some of the practical challenges of the shoot. It was very, very cold. So all of the sort of summery kind of brow-wiping acting that you see is acting. We also hear more behind-the-scenes stories from The Dig's producer and screenwriter. And of course, we talk about the film's complex female characters. This is, after all, Girls on Film. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello there, I'm your host, Anna Smith, and today we're chatting about The Dig, which has five BAFTA nominations and is currently on Netflix, our partners for this episode. If you haven't seen it yet, The Dig is the true story of the discovery of the Sutton Hoo treasure in 1939. Directed by Simon Stone, it stars Carey Mulligan as Edith Pretty, a wealthy widow who hires an amateur archaeologist, played by Rafe Fiennes, to excavate the burial mounds on her estate. It co-stars Lily James and Monica Dolan, who's one of our three fabulous guests today. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes, but with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. What are they? We're standing in someone's graveyard, I reckon. Viking? Well, maybe older. Mr. Brown is an archaeologist. Well, I'm an excavator. You've come to dig up the mounds. So you think there's something beneath? My first guest is screenwriter Moira Buffini, who's worked extensively in theatre and TV, as well as films including Jane Eyre in 2011 and Byzantium, the 2012 vampire film, and of course the very popular TV series Harlots. Moya, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations on your nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay at BAFTAs. Um, we're keen to talk about The Dig today. Um, tell me why you were passionate about adapting this book. I don't know. It's not often you read a book and you can just see the film. And, and it was like that for me with this book. I read it quite a long time ago. It's, it's been in the pipeline for many years. I think it was 2011 or 2012 that Ellie Wood, our producer, gave me the book. And I just, I, I found it very moving and straight away I could see the film and I just thought, I have to write this. And it was different to anything I'd done at the time. It just felt quite different. It was such an unusual world and I just loved the characters. It is an unusual world, isn't it? Not one we see, see on screen very often. Would you like to elaborate on that? Because it feels something quite magical in the current day watching, being taken back to that time in that very specific place. I mean, it's that British summer on the edge of a disaster feel about it, um, the summer of 1939, when we know what's just about to happen, but the characters don't. We know how the world is going to convulse and change, and they don't. So it's this feeling of a world that's about to disappear, I think, and what they're doing in that world is an archaeological dig. 
they are trying to find out more about another world that's completely disappeared. And in doing so, you know, they end up finding out more about themselves, I suppose. But I loved the idea that that the story uses the dig to unearth unexpected things so that it really becomes a kind of elegy, I suppose, on time, on love, on death, on our fragility. And I suppose, I suppose that the, the world, that little world of little England kind of opens up all of those things. It's a very, it's that wonderful thing. It's like a sort of very small canvas that gives you a very, very big resonance, I think. It's a, it's a rare thing to find in a, in a story. And what were some of the biggest decisions you had to make when you were approaching the adaptation? Firstly, and it became apparent as I was writing the first draft, that in the book, it's three different narrators, um, Basil Brown, Edith Pretty and Peggy Preston, who Lily James plays in the film. And they're the three narrators. And what you have is interior monologues from all three characters that sort of tell the story. And they are all three in their very separate, very different, very sort of at times acutely painful worlds. And I suppose what I had to do, I thought I don't know how to make this dramatic unless there is the action between them that a drama needs. So I think I wrote the links. I wrote the links between them. And, and, and then this ensemble sort of began to appear. Um, I think the film is much more of an ensemble than the book. Um, I think that's, that's probably the biggest difference. And then there's little changes. Um, you, you, you know, at every point, it's just how do you distill most from this event in the book? Uh, you, you know, so it's choices about that and choices about which of the characters to spotlight at times, like do you spotlight the little boy, Um, you know, at what point when May Brown comes in, you know, I love the character of May Brown, what what light do you throw on her, what light does she throw on everything, on the class system, on her relationship with Basil, on Basil's relationship with Edith, that kind of thing. We've been talking to Monica as oh, well about that, yeah. and I think it's so interesting. And, and what you what you brought out of that character, and then what she did with the part, I thought was was tremendous, and really brought a lot of really interesting issues out. Um, talk to me a bit about the other female characters. Um, are there any? Would you say there are any kind of feminist themes um, that come out of this? Because I feel like there are, but I'd like to hear your view on it. Yeah, I I think that's in me. I think that's in everything I write. I think I don't pick projects that don't have strong women in them or just not when when I say strong women I think that's such a sort of overused word but interesting three-dimensional rounded active women and I think that's what this project has I think the character of Edith Pretty both historically and in John's book and hopefully in the film is is really She's, I don't think she is an unusual woman, but she's an unusual woman in film. I think in film, it's true to say, I, I heard someone say a while ago that men are always stronger and more interesting in films than they are in life, and that women are always weaker and less interesting in films than they are in life. And I think, I think that's quite often true. 
Um, but with Edith Pretty, I don't think it's true. I think she's a really strong and interesting woman who's bringing up her boy on her own, incredibly intellectually curious woman. And when she decides what she's going to do, she sets about and does it. And yes, she's a privileged woman, but I still think she feels that um, feeling that everyone has felt at times, everyone female has felt at times, of, of being in a man's world, of being patronised and of being treated as slightly less than you are because of your gender. For example, just even the way the doctor speaks to her in that first scene, that he disregards what she says about her health and he tells her what he thinks about her health. So, you know, there's just little things like, like that. My interest in archaeology began like yours when I was scarcely old enough to hold a trowel. My childhood home was built on a Cistercian convent. I helped my father excavate the apse. Peggy Preston as well, I think she's a great character. She's John Preston's aunt. That's one of the reasons he wrote the book, because his aunt was at the dig. And Peggy is a woman who found herself in a, a sort of loveless marriage, but she's an incredibly intellectually gifted and very, very able woman who is as a young woman in, a, in the company of older men sort of tr trying to find her way and make her mark. So there's Peggy as well. And then there is May. And even the, even the household servants, you sort of try and give detail and character to um, so that you feel that they're real people on the edge of the action, if you like. Sorry, that's a very long answer, sorry. But it was a perfect answer. And we're always saying on Girls on Film, it's not so much about strong women, it's about complex women. And so I think you've summed it up really beautifully there. Our MO is just to have women that you believe and are interested in and layered. Yeah, I like writing really dreadful women as well. You know, it's this idea that, you, you know, the only sort of women we should be telling the stories of is like good, strong women. Um, I don't think so at all. I just think, I just think real women, please. Um, you know, real complex, dynamic, interesting women. Totally. Well, I loved your work on Byzantium in 2012. I must say that was oh, terrific. Yes. That was really what good <laughs> example of what we're talking about. I thought. I mean, that they. I mean, we say real women. Let's without spoilers, not necessarily no, real, no. Women, but they're <laughs> real, very interesting women. <laughs> real fantastical women. Yeah. 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 yeah loved that. Um, what What else in your past work would you like to highlight from a female perspective? Well, I suppose there's you know there's Harlots, my television show that I co-created with Alistair Newman. And she, she, being an actress, was very keen to write a drama that was female-led with lots of really interesting parts for women. And at the time, I think there's more of them now, but at the time, it was very, very hard to get Harlots made because nobody could really see what it was. She's one of the brightest stars in London's firmament, my older daughter. And I intend no less for Lucy. You, you are gold. Not ready. You will learn to be the queen pretend as I am. We were very lucky to get it made, and it was a long fight to get it made. Nobody could really see what it was at the time, that we wanted to take stories about women who worked in the sex industry and just tell them entirely from their perspective. You know, I, I, I think so often that subject matter is, is, is dealt with in a way that's either miserableist or kind of um, titillating. And we just wanted it, we just wanted them to be like groups of women are. We wanted it to be a workplace drama. And that although their choices 
have been so narrow that, and sometimes no choice at all. They've been forced into this career. We just wanted to look at how they find agency, even when they have no power, and how their camaraderie and their humour becomes a big part of what makes them strong and how they survive. So it was really that. It was really writing a world from a powerless woman's perspective, uh, writing a whole society. And I think prostitution being a very interesting career, prostitution as it was then called, sex work as it is now called, um, for a woman because it's the most socially mobile career, certainly at the time for a woman and possibly even still now, the most socially mobile career for a woman still on the planet. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thought. Yeah, yeah it's really, a, it, that, so Harlots is really a show about an economy. Um, <laughs> I love that. Work, a workplace drama about an economy. You know, and then there's Jane Eyre, who of course is the archetypal and the, the sort of original feminist heroine, if you like, who has just got incredible fortitude and is that uh, small and plain character with no power and no money, who is despised by everybody pretty much from the moment she's born, who still says, no, I must value myself. No, you, I will not let you treat me like this because I value myself. And I think my soul, Mr. Rochester, patriarch, is equal to yours. So, so I think that's the lesson of Jane Eyre. And that's why, that's why it's still an important story to tell. So I suppose from my past work, it's those two things. Well, listen, is there anything else you've been actually watching on Netflix lately that you'd recommend to people if you have time? Oh, do you know, I'm so enjoying, and I know everyone must, um, maybe it's just me who's watching it, maybe it's everybody, maybe it's the whole world. I'm, I'm loving that French show, Call My Agent. <laughs> we are too. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> um, so I'm watching that at the moment. And then honestly, you can tell there's, there's, it's been a long lockdown. I'm, I'm really, I'm on the, I've done lots of the BAFTA films, obviously. I've, done, I've watched lots of those. Um, but I'm, I'm watching quite dregs like reality TV <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, so I, I think, yeah, I sort of, um, and, and interspersed with interesting documentaries. I watched Honeyland the other night, which I found incredibly beautiful and moving. Yeah, it's an amazing documentary. Yeah, great recommendation. Well, you've been such a great guest. I hope you'll come back on and talk about your next projects. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. My next guest last appeared on Girls on Film talking about the comedy drama Days of the Bagnold Summer. And you'll also recognise her from other Girls on Film faves, including The Falling, Pride and Sightseers. In The Dig, she plays Mae Brown, wife of Rafe Fimes character Basil. She is Monica Dolan. Monica, welcome back to Girls on Film. Thank you. It's so nice of you to have me back again. Oh, well, you were very popular with our listeners as well as with us. We had lots of lovely feedback. Thank oh, you. Oh, great. Thank you. you. You always have an interesting perspective on films. And I'm curious to know, first of all, of course, your perspective on The Dig, in which you were, had a small but pivotal role. And we really enjoyed that kind of key scene you have um, with your husband, played by Ray Fiennes. Can you talk to me a little bit about what appealed to you about the role and perhaps that scene in particular? Well, I suppose, I mean, it's quite an interesting one because I, with with that whole piece, I felt like I was sort of popping in and out. I mean, um, and actually sometimes felt a bit jealous of everyone else because they were taking part in the dig itself. Whereas I suppose the thing is with, with May, 
that she sort of the outsider's view. I mean, if I'm really flattering myself, I'm saying that she's the audience's way in, but that might be be a bit much. I think the pivotal scene that you mean is when she talks about why he does it, why he does his job. And what I like about that scene, where that comes from, she's sort of like many wives or or partners or husbands, she's not that interested in what he actually does, but she loves him. So she's able to, because she knows him so well, she's able to explain why he does what he does and she can see, um, doesn't necessarily really understand or isn't necessarily that interested in, you know, the fact that it's all about the generations and ancestry and that somehow these artefacts make time timeless and make it feel like everything happens at once, you know. But she's, I was very lucky in a really good film, uh, quite often in a point around the middle, you've got one of the characters really putting into words what the essence of the film is and what the film's about. And I was very lucky because um, May was, was kind of that character really, even though as a person, she probably isn't, as invested as all the all the people who are actually digging, she can she can sort of see why they're doing it, and she you know she kind of um, takes the Mickey out of it a bit as well, which is which is always quite healthy, I think. Another thing that I felt was possibly going on in that scene was that example of of a woman, the old cliche behind a man, but almost making him think it's his idea or talking him through his own psychology to help clarify his mind. You could even say that partners do that for each other. It doesn't have to be, you know, male, female, does it? May is very practical. That's one of the things that I liked about her. And I think that's one of the things that she sometimes finds a bit tiresome in her own life, that she's always dealing with the landlord and always dealing with the problems and everything. And I think at this point in the film where um, he sort of storms away from the dig and comes back... um, she kind of has to save him from his own ego, really, because he's he's talking about credit and getting credit for the work. And and I, I sincerely believe that it's something that he's never really talked about before. And, she, I, you know, she's sort of saying, what's the matter with you? You know, this isn't why, this isn't the person I know. This isn't why you do this work. It's all about something bigger than, than you and bigger than your ego. And it's, you know, it's about the past, the present and the future. And that's why you're interested in it. So get back to it kind of thing. I may not be a fellow at Cambridge, but I worked there. What was down there? Jacobs and Spooner too, and nobody will remember that. You don't know that. You always told me you're working about the past or even the present. That's for the future. So that the next generations can know where they came from. The line that joins them to their forebears. Isn't that what you always say? Something like that. Why else would the lot of you be playing around in the dirt while the rest of the country prepares for war? Because that means something, doesn't it? Something that'll last longer than whatever damn war we're heading into. Yeah, she's she's certainly taking him to task and give, giving him a bit of a drubbing, I think, in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I love that. I love that. I've been quite blown away by the response to the film and I think that... In a strange way, because of where we are now and we all feel like we're in a, an historic time, it, it's, you know, it's sort of that film kind of works well for now. And, and also the, um, the, you know, they found all of those amazing artefacts from uh, 6 AD or whatever it was 
at a time when we were about to go to war, when the world was about to go to war, and everyone had a sense of that. So I think it was very, it was incredible for Britain's patriotism to find something that important just on the eve of war. And also I think that um, there's just that sense of timelessness and ancestry and uh, the past, the present and future. And if that comes at really momentous times, then that, you know, that's that's saying something quite big. It is another one of those films where you think, gosh, it does have an extra resonance at the moment. And I can yeah. see why a lot of people have responded to it on Netflix as well as, you know, for awards voters. Talk to me a little bit more about the process of filming because it's a, a fantastic cast assembled there. Yeah, incredible cast. How was it? Well, it was really exciting, um, you know, just to just to talk to everyone in between and everything. I mean, Kerry Mulligan had done a, one, a really brilliant one-woman show at the Royal Court and I'd done my one-woman show, so it was we were chatting lots about that in between um you know it was it was really nice location and everything it was very very cold so everything all of the sort of summary kind of brow wiping um acting that you see is acting because I think it was I think I did my most of my stuff in November and um uh yeah the whole you know the whole thing is kind of taking is set in the summer of 1939. That's so, really um, impressive, I must say. I didn't yeah. I didn't get that. You must have been quietly <laughs> That's shivering. That's the acting bit. How do you cover up <laughs> shivering? How do you do that? I don't know. I suppose it's years of training. <laughs> <laughs> well, bravo. <laughs> That's highly impressive. And, and of course, you and Rafe are, are terrific together. Have you worked together before? I can't remember. Oh, thank you. No, I don't think we have. I mean, actually, weirdly, since then, um, you know, with all of the attempts at work during the pandemic, we both did solo shows at the Bridge Theatre. So um, that's Nicholas Heitner's theatre. And and I'd done one of the talking heads for the BBC and Rafe did a one-man show written by David Hare. So we were kind of um, crossing paths. Well, we weren't crossing paths because everyone's socially distanced, but, you know, we were in in the same building at, at sort of slightly different times and ships that pass in the night kind of thing, doing our doing our, our solo shows. But um, no, I mean, I'd, I'd really... I mean, obviously, he's a tremendous film actor, but um, I'd really love to work with him on stage as well. I think he's a very, very exciting actor indeed. I think, you know, it would be... It would be just so exhilarating to work on stage with him. Well, last time we spoke to you, we had an interesting conversation about how you feel that you very much want to contribute to the creative process. So you have interesting conversations with writers and directors and producers about the exact portrayal of, of your character. Um, was there any examples of that in The Dig that you could pick out? Yeah, I think there was. I mean, I, I felt really early on, and, and the great thing about Simon Stone um, is one of the great things is that he's so open. So I think quite early on, I felt that May in the script had a beginning and a middle and sort of had an end, but I wanted to make it a bit clearer and a bit firmer. And... Um, yeah, he he was he was very open to that, and you know sometimes it's just a matter of sort of changing a few lines or whatever. But I'm not somebody. I know that some actors kind of like to do that and play with that on the day. I'm not really that sort of person. I I I sort of look at it in advance and maybe like to change things in advance because also you don't. If you're changing things on the day, you, you know there there are people working on it who who by that stage have a lot 
better idea of the whole context of it and a whole outside eye on it that you don't have. So, so yeah, if, if, if I am discussing that or anything, then, then I like to do it early on. And, you know, some, some people are more open than others. And I was really, really lucky with, with, with Simon Stone, as I was extremely lucky with Simon Bird on, on Days of the Bagnall Summer as well. You know, I mean, we put a whole other layer in that film, I think, um, just, just from talking early on. So, Well, planning sounds like the best way forward with that. I can't imagine you'd be that popular if you suddenly threw a spanner in the works as you were filming. Yeah. You know, some people think of that as, as creative and, and sometimes it can be, but I, I'm just not not that sort really. So tell me about the improvisation involved in this. That was quite an interesting one because um, we'd worked really, really hard on our accents. Um, we were, you know, um, we were doing Suffolk accents. And um, so it was Charlie Haylock, who's a very brilliant dialect coach. And he would be in the trailer beforehand and going through exactly all the sounds that you had um, coming up in that scene. And then, so you do all of those and you do them all as well as you could. And then quite often Simon Stone would leave the camera running and you think, OK, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose we'd better say a bit more now. And so, you know, so we, we did carry on improvising, but the, the worry is that, you know, I'm going to start sounding like myself or because um, I haven't kind of practised the Suffolk on those bits. But I, I, I think it turned out OK. That's cool. That's interesting to know. I, you know, it's one of those films that I wouldn't have guessed yeah. that about it, but I can see that it really would have benefited from it. That's really cool. Yeah, if, you, if you're doing an accent, it just gets a bit like, oh, no, am I still doing the accent? <laughs> <laughs> Once you're kind of making up things, but yeah. How much research did you do into your own character? Was, is there anything much to go on out there? There wasn't that much, but what there was, I really hung on to, and I've realised that I'm a bit of a terrier like that. Um, for some reason, I got really into the fact that she had this... She had a terrible temper, apparently, um, uh, but I got really into the fact that she had this curly hair and um, that, you know, that that would sort of go a bit wilder when she was cross. And um, so, uh, so yeah, so we kept the hair and, um, and it, you know, it was Netflix as well and they have really good researchers. So whatever there is, they will find. Um, but she was very interesting. I mean, she, she did all sorts of jobs. She would do kind of care work and babysitting and cleaning and all of that. But also she, um, she wrote for the local paper um and you know was she was she was very sort of important in her community and in her neighborhood as well so i think the thing is and the challenge is always when you're playing a character like that that she brings she has to somehow bring the whole village where she lives and basil's you know whole backstory with her into the scene sometimes you know if if you're actually involved in the main part of the film you've got you've got so much to get involved in and um to create from but if you're bringing the world in then that's that's kind of a lot of outside work that you're sort of you're sort of bringing in so so I was yeah I was I was really lucky that um that these Netflix people do so much work and help you so much. Well, I want them to do a spin-off with May, I think. We, we need a, a sequel with yeah. her at the centre of the story. I want to know more about her. She sounds great. And um, thank you for bringing her yeah. to life so beautifully. Oh, thank you. Well, what are you working on at the moment? Are you filming? I am, yes, actually. I'm. Um, you've just caught me in between trips to Birmingham where I'm uh, filming a, a single drama for the BBC and it's called My Name is Leon. And it's based on a brilliant book by 
uh, Kit DeWall, and it's the Birmingham riots of 1981, all seen through the eyes of a little boy. Um, and he's he's a little mixed-race boy, and he um, he's always been brought up by white people and had experience of white people. And it, so it's sort of about him discovering his identity, really. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's... That that's that's really tremendous, and you know our our number one character is our number one uh, character on the call sheet is is only thirteen and and playing a nine year old. So yeah, it's quite quite a task for him being a lead, but he's really really doing it well. Thank you for coming back on Girls on Film. We'd love you to come back again. It's always a joy to speak to you. It's really lovely to speak to you, Anna. Thank oh, you. Take care. Speak to you soon. My final guest is the producer of The Dig, who's well known for the likes of The Duchess, The Invisible Woman and Stan and Ollie, and Philomena, for which she and her co-producers were Oscar nominated. She is Gabrielle Tanner. Well, Gabby, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. Hello. Where are you at the moment? I'm in Sydney, Australia, in quarantine. Oh, my goodness. How's that going? Well, I'm on day nine and, um, yeah, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. It's pouring with rain here, so that makes it easier to be stuck inside. That's some comfort, isn't it? Yeah. Are you you working out there after quarantine? I am, yes. Anything you can tell us about? Yeah, it's a film um, which is now called 13 Lives, and it's a film that Ron Howard's directing, and it's about the little boys that were captured in the cave in Thailand about three and a half years ago. Oh, wow. And the whole rescue mission, yeah, to get them out. That sounds like powerful stuff. And I must say, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of all the work you've done. I, I particularly love the film Philomena. Uh, that was my film yeah. of the year that year. Amazing. <laughs> and, and it's great to be speaking to you about The Dig today. And congratulations on five BAFTA nominations, including Outstanding British Film. It's lovely. Um, tell me, because I mean, there is a bit of a thread that runs through, I think, in a lot of the work that you do, which is um, particularly interesting female characters. And of course, the dig is no exception. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about what intrigued you about this story, particularly perhaps from the female character perspective? Well, I think the fact that it was a woman who initiated, you know, this whole extraordinary story. Um, so that moved me in the first instance. And then it was that thing about bringing people together to do something extraordinary, um, unlikely people, which I think are always, you know, kind of moving tales and inspiring tales. Yeah, that does, again, seem to be a, a common thread with, with Philomena, just that, that lovely heartwarming aspect of very different people coming together and achieving something mm-hmm. extraordinary. Um, yes, and, and this, of course, sort of touches on a lot of historical aspects of women in archaeology. You know, would you like to speak a little bit more about that in particular, about the character of Edith and how she kind of sensed something was there, you know, and kind of set, set a whole chain of historic events in motion? Well, I think, you know, she was fascinated by archaeology, you know, as a child and then going on. And she probably would have gone and studied archaeology, you know, if it had been another time in history and if her circumstances had been different. Um, but I think too, you know, the, the, if you look at the actual site of Sutton Hoo, it's, it's extraordinary. So it's not completely, it's not sort of like she just had this ordinary flat garden where, <laughs> where, you know, you could imagine something could be there. There were these extraordinary mounds. So in her sort of sense of history, and then yes, I think there was, you know, clearly she felt she had a feeling, but it was not such an extraordinary thing 
to imagine that there could be something extraordinary in those mounds. Bit of a clue there, right? Yeah. Yeah, there was a bit of a clue. <laughs> but she, she followed her intuition. I was reading Howard Carter's account of his excavation of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Oh. He stood at the threshold of the burial chamber, the first man to do so for 3,000 years, and he saw finger marks still on the paint. He say time lost its meaning. It occurs to me that you might unearth human remains. Yeah, that's possible. We're digging down to meet the dead. And when you were um, developing the project and thinking about the best way to approach it, can you talk to me about some of the decisions that were made around then? I mean, obviously, getting it funded must be the, the tough part, right? But there must be a lot of other challenges and, and pivotal moments. There was a wonderful book that it was based upon, and it is true story. Um, and then, of course, there's always creative license that goes on. And it's a team that comes together to sort of, you know, to figure out sort of how to tell it. But Moore had written a beautiful screenplay. And so that was a wonderful cornerstone. Um, and then it was about really building from there. And Simon Stone, when he came to it, came with really sort of a very inspiring vision that just sort of brought a whole other dimension to the story, which was very, very exciting. Yeah. That's interesting. So what was different about his vision? Sort of what direction did he take it? Well, he... He brought really the whole sense of the universe and the cosmos into the story, which really hadn't been there before. Um, and sort of the bigger picture and sort of connecting the dots historically. It was even more, I think, he, he just brought prominence to that. You know, there was already the kernel of that, but he really expanded on that and brought many more dimensions to it. In terms of your job, because like, we have some listeners who are in the industry, but others may not be so familiar um, with what a producer does, which is, I know, a lot, kind of like everything. Um, but <laughs> it, for, as using this film as an example, it would be really interesting to, to talk a little bit through more about, about your role from the beginning of the project right up to completion. Well, on this one, I was brought in actually when there was already a script, which isn't always the case. Generally, I normally you know start from the ground up and start with developing the script. There was already a strong script, which kept changing though and working, um, working with it. Um, and um, then really, actually, even before we had Simon on this one, brought in Maria Jerkovich, the production designer. Um, and so she actually started working with us very early on, figuring out how to actually create those mounds, which is a really strong character in this story. Um, just as important as an actor in this case. And then when Simon came on, then it was about really gathering the cast. Um, quite early on, um, I introduced him to Rafe, who I'd worked with a lot, and they got on famously, and Rafe signed on to come on and work on the film. And Lucy Bevan came on to help us work with the rest of the casting. At one point, we had another Edith, um, and then through the process, we had to sort of make some changes there which was later in the, the game than is normally desirable. <laughs> um, and then really just, yeah, putting the finance together, building the whole team. Oh, also, you know, Mike Ely, our cinematographer, he came on pretty early as soon as Simon was in, putting him together with, you know, a really strong creative team. He'd worked a lot with Alice Babbage before um, in theater. So she came with him, which was wonderful. And then you're building a family, really. 
a creative family and then the money <laughs> and then the money to, to feed the family. <laughs> exactly. That's the big one, isn't it? Um, well, congratulations for getting that family together. Um, I was reading an interview you did a while ago with The Guardian and you said that women make good producers. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting point. Could you expand on that a bit? Well, I think that we're, we're nurturers, which I think is part of what, you know, makes a good producer. And taking care of the detail, I think that's something that women are good at. I don't like to overly, you know, generalize, but um, yeah. So I think that we're trained in a way, I think, just from early on, that makes us sort of good taskmasters. And you must have to have pretty good instincts about people and how different people work together and function. I think that's a very important part of it and helping that process. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned um, some of your heads of department, but obviously yeah. there's they're all showing up very nicely in the BAFTA nominations. Um, can you talk to me a bit more about those, for example, costumes and makeup and hair? Well, um, Jenny Sherko, who is deservedly nominated, I'd worked with before on The Invisible Woman, and she's just a, a master. I mean, she's just so, so good. And um, it was a joy to have her on. And fortunately, we secured her early on because it's always hard to get these people at that level of, of talent. Um, but we we got her in early, which was wonderful. And um, it's always a joy to work with her. She just creates this wonderful environment for the actors as a safe place, which is part of that gift too, not just making the faces look extraordinary, but creating that right environment for the people that have to go and be in front of the camera. And Alice, it was just magic. Now, that was something that, you know, Simon brought on. I didn't know her before, but she was just wonderful. And she worked so beautifully with Maria. They actually managed to, it was wonderful that our production office actually allowed them to work together on the same floor, which was the first time I had experienced that and something I would definitely always prescribe going forward, just because you've got those eyes, the people that are creating the world that we're going to be filming. And for them to you know, share that language and those references was a very, very special thing. And Maria is just, she's just extraordinary. She just, um, I'd worked with her before. Um, also on The Invisible Woman and loved her and was so excited to be working with her again. And she just is, she's just her, her detail and she's tireless. I mean, there's nobody that works harder than Maria and just sort of inspires sort of an energy and that excitement. So there's a lot of great strong women behind this film. That's Yeah, there are. Here. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about the reactions because obviously this came out in a year that you were not expecting events to occur. And it feels to me like perhaps the themes of the film are resonating, particularly when we're all stuck at home wondering what's in the back garden and also thinking more about connection and community. Yeah, no, I think it's in a way, yeah, it's sort of poetic. Um, it's the zeitgeist. It's wonderful that it's actually come at a moment where I think it's needed, where this sort of a story really is meaningful and is very moving. People are more receptive to it probably than, you know, they would have been in just another time where you know, things are moving much faster. So that's been a gift. But I mean, it's also quite tragic that it's not actually being seen um, on big screens because it really is cinema. But I think actually, I just heard actually today that it will actually be coming out in the cinemas in the UK in May um, when cinemas open up. So people will have a possibility to see it in that context. But, but, you know, but the experience of having it out on Netflix has been like nothing else. I mean, for everybody in the world to be seeing something and sharing it at the same time, a conversation to be so vital, which has been very moving and exciting. So what kind of reactions have you had? Have you had lots of friends calling you and yeah. having watched it at home? Yes. And just people reaching out from all over the world and friends of friends and 
my parents' friends and just it's been, um, yeah, I've never experienced anything quite like it where, you know, that thing of the whole universe in a way responding to something at the same time, that collective reaction. It's wonderful. Yeah, everyone's got access to it and everyone's yeah. talking about it. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Is there anything else a little bit about the female characters that you wanted to touch from? Because obviously there's more than one. We were speaking to Monica Dolan on the on the podcast and she's wonderful. And we were saying that even though it's, it's a small role, she just makes that her own and, and it's really important couple of scenes, right? Oh, she is just magic. She, what she brought to that was just so special. Just so moving. Um, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's those those women actually who sort of were behind the scenes, you know, I mean, you see them behind the scenes, but sort of coming forward. Um, the character of Peggy is the same, you know, somebody who is still on the fringes because she is still a woman. And, you know, it's, it's because she's, you know, slight that she can go into <laughs> the boat as opposed to because she's got the brains and the wits. So it's it's a wonderful portrayal of, of women at that time. Yeah, it feels like it's a real testament to the strength. And I and I love that the script, and which we will also be talking about, and this kind of really yes. highlighted, as you say, the resilience of these women who, you know, they weren't given the advantages or bit at the forefront, but they were just as influential. Yes, and they're doing it, yeah. And in a sense, egoless, you know. I mean, the fact that actually, you know, Egot pretty, you know, she'd actually been offered to be a dame and refused, you know, said, no, thank you. That wasn't important to her. It wasn't about being glorified. It was just about, you know, doing things and, and for the right reasons, in a sense. So selfless, actually, which is not something that we see a lot of today. It's a good example at the moment, isn't it, to have yeah. that kind of selflessness yeah. and caring for the future, much like that scene in which Monica's character kind of That's, encapsulates yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there anything else about the film you wanted to highlight, uh, particularly from the sort of female perspective? Not necessarily from the female perspective, but just I think, you know, it's a great privilege to be able to tell this kind of a story. And, you know, working with the best of, you know, the British, you know, it just, was just a glorious thing of being able to sort of celebrate an amazing story and work in beautiful locations in a lot of mud, I must say, and a lot of rain, but still... <laughs> Yeah, but I think, yeah, it's a wonderful story about women's resilience and and vision. Couldn't agree more, Gabby. Thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. And we look forward to speaking to you again with your next project. Thank you. You can watch The Dig now on Netflix UK. Tune in soon for more awards season coverage. Meantime, do follow us on social media for daily film recommendations. And why not pop over to our Patreon page where we've got extra videos for you patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast girls on film is an hla production brought to you by executive producer hedda archbold audio producer dan pugsley assistant producers heather dempsey and eliana J, and our partners for this episode netflix you've been listening to me anna smith and i was joined by actor monica dolan producer gabrielle tanner and screenwriter Moira Buffini. See you soon. Stay safe. Apparently local girls used to lie down on them in the hope of falling pregnant. <laughs>